Eat bitter. Since time immemorial, this has been the creed that governed the Chinese diaspora's response to exclusion, persecution, and racism. Expect no welcome, no sympathy or justice. Just work hard and be happy if you survive. But sometimes, with enough loving preparation and a little bit of spice, even the bitterest fruits can be transformed into fine dishes that delight the senses, nourish the body, and uplift the soul. Now is the time to take the bitterness dished out to the Chinese 150 years ago in a small California town and eat it in the name of justice, the dead, and redemption. The year is 1871, and this is Blood on Gold Mountain. Gold was the color of the brilliant sunshine, and gold, too, the tall grass that covered the softly swelling hills like fur on the flanks of some great beast gently rippling in the breeze. The morning had been misty, but now it was close to noon and the sky was as blue as the eyes in a peacock's tail. The valley was vast, with row upon row of tawny tree-studded hills stretching for miles on either side before mounting steeply, one on top of the other, at the feet of two enormous ridges. Up on those high slopes, gold gave way to the dark jade of live oak gullies, and then, higher still, the bristling blue-black of pine forest. At the foot of the western ridge there was a road, and on that road there was a stagecoach, drawn by two horses and containing a driver who dozed lightly beneath his enormous straw hat, as well as a modest quantity of luggage and two passengers. One of the passengers was a woman in a comfortable, weather-beaten tunic of rough-spun cotton. Her trousers and shoes were of the same stuff, but she wore them with the kind of easy grace that made her seem strong and expansive despite her youthful face and small frame. Her name was Yut Ho, and she was peeling an orange with a bowie knife, carefully slicing away the fragrant skin in one long, thin strip as she listened to the other passenger who was speaking. If we keep up this pace, we should be there before nightfall, or at least before the moon clears that ridge. It'll be a nice break. Indian camp is no palace, but we can expect a room that can fit all three of us with straw mattresses and something hot to eat. Anyway, none of us will have to stand watch. It's pretty quiet out there in Indian camp. The young man laughed, flashing a wide smile that twinkled with gold. He was older than the young lady, six years older to be precise, which meant that he was all of 25. He was tall and muscular, with very dark skin, and a long shiny scar that ran down the left side of his face. His shirt was black cotton, his trousers of tight black sailcloth, and his boots, belt, and jacket were all of the same thick, dusky leather. He wore his shoulder-length hair loose, 
At his hip hung a very clean-looking revolver in a leather holster, and on the peg beside him hung a wide-brimmed black felt hat and a long straight sword with a lion's head carved into the pommel. His name was Ah Choi, and he was Yat Ho's brother. Yat Ho used the tip of her knife to pluck the end of the long strip of orange peel from the convergence of the fruit's nine translucent lobes. On the very end of the strip was a tiny green floret, the ghost of the orange blossom the fruit had once been. She sighed a little and then tossed the ribbon of peel out the open window and separating the orange into slightly uneven halves, tossed the smaller one to Achoy. So, she said, popping an orange section to her mouth, what have you really been doing here for the past five years? What? You don't believe what I wrote to our parents? Achoy tried his best to look indignant. How could you question my filial piety? Yet Ho rolled her eyes. If there were gold lying around everywhere, I'm pretty sure that all those young men in San Francisco would be lounging around in opium dens and whorehouses instead of sleeping ten to a room and washing Guayla laundry all day and night. Besides, what kind of miner needs swords and guns within reach at all times? Seems to me that you've been up to your old tricks again, but you had to cook up a big crock of respectable chou tofu for mom and dad so they'd accept the money. So no, I'm not really questioning your filial piety. Rather the opposite, in fact. Her smile was quick and bright, like the flash of a trout in a clear stream. Your chodofu money kept us alive. Achoy returned the smile, but this time his was slow and sad. For a while, at least. Yetho shook her head as if to shake off a cloud of smoke. It kept them alive as long as anything could, she said, and I'm still alive. So stop acting tragic and tell me, because I'm really curious to know what you've been doing all these years. Start at the beginning. You know how I hate it when you tell stories all out of order. So Yut Ho leaned back and made herself comfortable against the hard wooden bench, and Ah Choi took a deep breath, glanced out the window at the glorious California sky, and began. I really did try mining at first. There was a team of Chinese miners getting outfitted when my ship came in, and I ran into some of them by chance. They were from Ziyup and spoke our dialect, so we hit it off right away, and I ended up joining them on their expedition. We left a few days later by water and landed at Vallejo, which was about two days' sail to the east. The San Francisco Bay is huge, like an ocean. After that, it was hard work. We had a lot of heavy equipment and very few pack animals, so we had to muscle up. I remember the foreman, a big old man who looked like Guang Gong, carrying a sluice the size of a tree trunk on his shoulder. Anyway, we'd find old mining camps, which the Guaylao had abandoned, set up and coaxed the remaining gold from the sand with water, sweat, and patience. It was pretty good work for a while. The Guaylao tend to be lazy. 
They hate hard work and they're always trying to avoid responsibility. I don't know why. Also, most of them drink too much and their cooking is awful. So only the biggest and baddest ones can keep up their strength. All this meant they left plenty of gold in the ground and we hauled our equipment from claim to claim and took it out. Z yup, men have never been afraid of hard work. Oh, stop. It's true. Most the up men and women. You're right. Even I got used to it after a while. I did this for a little over a year. We worked hard, moved fast, and got a lot of gold for poor miners. More gold than we had expected. Though, of course, not as much as we've been hoping for. We were very lucky to have a handful of good cooks on our team as well as a blacksmith, and most important of all, the traditional doctor. This last one was really important because we couldn't afford to have anyone stay down or sick for long. He spent his days roaming the hills, hunting for herbs and mushrooms that would heal us and keep up our strength. Then at night, he would take out his scratchy old Urhu, and we would sing songs about home, the gods, and women. He said singing was good for our lungs and our spiritual health. And I'm inclined to think he was right. It was winter and just starting to get cold when something happened that made me have to leave camp. We were working on an old claim somewhere up in the hills close to Sonoma and we struck gold. This was more gold than we had ever found before, and it kept coming day after day. A couple of the men went into town and bought a pig, plus some guayla whiskey, so that we could celebrate our good fortune. After all, we had been eating nothing but rice with wild greens and whatever fish or game we could catch for more than a year. Sometimes, when vegetables were scarce, the doctor would even make us eat mashed acorns like a thrifty old auntie. Anyway, that pig was like a gift from heaven. I don't think I ever tasted anything so good. The next day, we were working off the hangover when the guayla arrived. There were about 10 of them to 14 of us, but unlike us, they had guns. It was a bad business. They ran us off the claim, pushing us down the sandy bank by shooting at our feet. We had to leave everything. Our equipment and tools, our clothes, belongings, whatever we didn't have on our backs was gone. The night before, we had been rich. Some of the men were even talking about taking the money down to San Francisco and then sailing home so they could see their wives and children again. Now, we had nothing but the food in our bellies and a handful of guayla bullets kicking up sand at our heels. That night, we took shelter in a hollow beneath a great big outcropping of rock. A few of the guys had gold or a bit of money on them, but it wasn't nearly enough to replace all the stolen equipment. The situation was made worse by two things. First of all, the claim jumpers 
would almost certainly have told the Gualas sheriff that there was a group of rogue Chinamen up in the hills, posing an imminent threat to the town. We'd heard stories about this kind of thing happening to other crews. You see, Chinese in this country live outside the law. We can't speak to a judge unless it's to accuse another Chinaman, Indian or Mexican, of a crime. That means any Guala can bring down the law on us at any time. And the claim jumpers would almost certainly enlist the sheriff's help to run us out of town. On top of that, each Chinese miner has to pay a tax of 20 American dollars every month, or the sheriff will come take his equipment and drag him off to jail. In gold, that translates to about five American grams, which is about a quarter of what each of us had been making each month before the robbery. And now, with all of our equipment and a fair bit of our gold gone, none of us could afford to pay the tax. Our career as a mining crew was functionally over. As if our financial and legal problems weren't enough, we also had no food and no way of getting any with the town on alert for rogue Chinamen. All our trapping and fishing gear was still at camp. There was a very real possibility that even if we escaped from the sheriff and the vigilantes, some of us would starve. While the other men were talking, I slipped away from the fire and went for a walk. We all knew these hills pretty well, and I didn't have any trouble in the dark. You see, I don't like being chased around by Guayla like a dog. And unlike my companions, who were all honest, upstanding, hardworking men, I had plenty of experience living outside the law. So I slipped silently through the trees, using the light body technique Gung Gung taught us for catching pheasants. Remember? My plan was to slip into camp and grab the big 50-pound sack of rice from the place that we had stashed it. And it almost worked. I got to camp, and the claim jumpers were all down by the river, drinking whiskey and eating the rest of our pig. The rice was hidden up on a little hill, close to the tree line, in a sort of small cave we had chiseled out of a big piece of sandstone. We had rolled a boulder in front of it, so that raccoons or other hungry creatures wouldn't be able to get into the sack. Darkness and the drunken god were on my side and I managed to roll away the boulder without incident. But then I froze. One of the Guayla had gotten up from their fire and was coming right towards me, stumbling as he walked. He was drunk, half blind from the firelight, and evidently looking for a place to piss. I suppose the little hillock struck his fancy because he came right up to my hiding place. I had no time to run. He would have seen or heard movement and sounded the alarm. And anyway, I needed that rice. I don't know whether he saw me at the last moment or just a shadow in the dark. But I saw his eyes widen and that was it. I found that my knife, that knife you're playing with now, in fact, was in my hand and I grabbed him by the beard and cut his throat before he could make a noise. It was easy, like slaughtering a pig. He pissed himself as he bled out. I smelled it as I quietly stripped the revolver and gun belt from his waist and fastened it around my own. 
Then I grabbed the rice along with a little tin cook pot we always kept with it and was gone. When I got back to the place where my friends were hiding, most of the men had gone to sleep in a pile around the fire like orphans. The nights get cold up there in the hills, and all of our bedding and blankets were down at the camp. Only two men were still awake, talking quietly over the crackle and splutter of the hastily cut greenwood fire. The foreman and the doctor. I walked right up to them. I must have looked funny and rather alarming appearing as I did out of nowhere, wild-haired and shivering, splattered with blood and cradling the sack of rice like it was my firstborn child. They did seem mildly surprised, but neither of them laughed. I gave them the rice and told them what had happened. The likelihood was that the claim jumpers would discover their dead companion in the morning and start scouring the woods, enlisting the sheriff's help by midday. The whole town would be up in arms by nightfall, with riders out on the roads to Napa and Petaluma, at least. They would have to wake the men and move out immediately. But where? The foreman told me that their best hope was to make the 50-mile journey to Sacramento, where they could lose themselves in the crowds. In all likelihood, they could find work there. Rumor had it that some big Guayla railroad company was hiring workers for $20 a month, which was as good as any of us was likely to get now that our mining equipment was gone. I told the foreman it was a good plan and urged him to stay off the roads. Keep to the hills and forests, I told him. If you go directly east, you should be able to make it over the ridges and come out north of Bucktown in about two weeks. There should be plenty of water this season, though it will be cold. The Napa Valley is the risky part. You'll have to cross it in a single night and get well up into the hills on the other side before you light a fire. Bucktown will be on high alert, so be careful where you make camp. Davis should be all right, though. There will be too many Chinamen there for anyone to point the finger at you. Besides, I'll have drawn the heat in the opposite direction by then. Then I told them about my plan, because I had resolved not to go with them and work for the Guayla as a slave and coolie in all but name. I was finished with this life of hard work, where everything I had could be stripped away by any Guayla who could afford a six-shooter. That's right, little sister. I was going back to my old trade. More lucrative and dignified than the life of a foreign Chinese miner. I was going back to a life of crime and of banditry. Yut Ho was frowning down at the bowie knife. Its blade was longer than her hand and nearly as wide as her narrow wrist. The old woman at the Huiguan in San Francisco said it was a terrible crime to kill the Guayla, she said. Achoy made a derisive noise. She said it would bring down terrible misfortune on the Chinese in this country if we kill Guayla, Yaho insisted. Achoy sighed. Do you know how that old woman makes her money, little sister? 
he asked, placing a slight emphasis on Little Sister in a way that Yutho found highly irritating. No, she snapped. Of course not. She didn't tell you. You know why? Because she hangs around the Huiguan playing mahjong until she sees a girl or a group of girls who she can tell have just come fresh off the boat, all wide-eyed and gaping like so many mackerels still smelling of the sea. Then she sidles up to them and starts talking to them about how dangerous it is here, how terrible and mighty the Guayla are, and how what they need more than anything, more than money, or new clothes, or even food, is friends. We Chinese women need to stick together. Does that sound familiar? Yes, Sit Yat Ho, outwardly sullen, but stifling an inward giggle. The old woman's actual words had been, We Chinese women need to stick together because this country turns men into horses and pigs. Ah Choi really did seem a little more horse-like now than before, with his sun-kissed skin and that wild mane. Then, said Ah Choi, eyes flashing like an unbroken stallion, once she's won their trust, she invites them to come stay with her since she runs a house where girls can be safe and stick together while they get on their feet. There's food at the house and a change of clothes and a bunch of girls who will show you the ropes of how to make it in this strange country. All this can be yours as long as you're not afraid of a little bit of hard work. Isn't that what she said? Yutho tossed her head and snorted. Perhaps the transformative California air had an effect on women as well as men. Maybe that's what she would have said if you hadn't interrupted and started jabbering at her in Guayla. But since you did, and since I don't speak Guayla, I guess I'll never know what she said before she left. Probably something like, Get away from me, you sword-toting giant. I'll tell you what she said. One of Achoy's eyebrows had risen up so high it was mostly concealed behind a lock of hair that lay across his forehead. He no longer looked like a horse, more like a gigantic black vulture. She was offering me 150 American dollars. A pretty good price. For what? said Yatho, not bothering to conceal the skeptical disdain in her voice. For you, said Achoy. There was a silence. Outside the window, a hawk was tracing slow loops of ephemeral calligraphy on the perfectly cloudless sky. The wheels of the carriage growled steadily against the hard-packed road. The wind whispered soft and sibilant through the tall grass, and Ah Choi sat back against the hardwood wall without saying a word, but Yat Ho understood. This is why, said Ah Choi's silence. This is why we are on the road to a little-known frontier town which the locals call Los Angeles. 
This is why I found you a rich husband who could pay for your passage without demanding a heavy dowry in return. Because our homeland is at war and people are starving in the streets. Because our village is burned, our parents are dead, and our people scattered all over the world like drops of blood from a spurting wound. Because fortune has cast us upon the shores of a barbarous nation whose residents hold us in disdain. Because, just as I will not allow them to make me a slave, I will not allow them to make you a whore. Because I have chosen to live by the sword and cannot stay by your side. Because I hope that you might be happy, make a family, bear children who will remember us and not let our ghosts go hungry. Because life is not fair for women, for Chinamen, for anyone. Because I want to do my best for you. Because this is the best that I can do. Because you are all I have left. Because I love you. All these things Yat-Ho understood from her brother's silence, and she felt ashamed and proud. And in that moment, deep down in the fiery part of her belly, Yat-Ho resolved that since the two of them had suffered so much to save her from her parents' fate and give her a chance at a better life, she would make things right by building a life that was better than anything either of them could have hoped for, and she would do it no matter what the cost. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, leave us a review, and follow us on Instagram at Blood on Gold Mountain. The next episode will be released on Wednesday, April 7th. Blood on Gold Mountain is brought to you by the Holmes Performing Arts Fund of the Claremont Colleges, the Pacific Basin Institute of Pomona College, the Public Events Office at Scripps College, the Scripps College Music Department, and the Entrepreneurial Musicianship Department at the New England Conservatory. It is hosted by Hao Huang, Micah Huang, and Emma Guise, featuring original music by Micah Huang and the Flower Pistols. A special thanks to Ivo Terra from Simpler Media Productions for his expertise and support. Thanks for listening and see you next time.